Welcome to another episode of Variety's Strictly Business Podcast, where we talk with the brightest minds working in the media world today. I'm Variety co-editor-in-chief Andrew Wallenstein. The peak TV era is in full swing here in Hollywood, flooding the industry with hundreds more scripted series than there were just a few short years ago. Can you imagine how that's changed the deals that put those shows on screen? My next guest knows, and he's written a new book about it. Ken Basin is the author of The Business of Television, and it's a business he knows very well, having worked at Sony Pictures, Amazon Studios, and now Paramount Television, where he's currently Senior VP of Business Affairs. Welcome, Ken. Welcome. Thank you, Andrew. <laughs> Let's get right into why you wanted to write this book, what you were looking to do. Uh, I set out to write the book that I wish had existed when I was just getting started in the television business. I think like a lot of people who go into the field, one of my first actions was to go on Amazon and try to buy every business book I could and to educate myself as much as I could, uh, both about kind of the individual deals that I was going to be working with and what I should expect to be the important issues, but also kind of on a macro level, what is the structure of this industry? Who are the players and how do they interact? And I found that I wasn't really satisfied with the resources that were available to me on all of that. There were a lot of form contracts out there. Um, you know, there were some historically oriented books that might talk about the development of television and the FCC going back to the 1950s, uh, but nothing that felt really contemporary and relevant and nothing that I felt really prepared me to be an executive in this industry um, coming as I did from the background of a law firm attorney. Uh, so I decided to go out and write the book that I wish I could have read. Sounds smart, but is that – the fact that you weren't able to get that material out there, wasn't that also not so much a reflection of just these books not being contemporary, but my guess is the industry from the time you first came into it and now has changed dramatically in terms of the kind of work you do? Well, no question. I mean, uh, there's. I, I would give it a couple of factors. One, I think most of the people writing books had different motivations than I did. I think a lot of the books that were written out there are written by private practicing attorneys who wanted to show off enough expertise to prove that they are you know, a knowledgeable force and that you should hire them as your attorney, but not so much that you can go ahead and do the job without them. And uh, I don't have to generate clients, so I don't have to uh, parse my insights in the same way. But you're absolutely right. I mean, I read a book by Howard Blumenthal called This Business of Television that was you know, a pretty deep, detailed book that took us through about 2003, and I, I'm not sure if there's been a more recent edition since then, but it's insight on you know, things like Amazon and Netflix, companies that didn't exist when the last edition came out, was limited to saying, the internet, it's an important thing, and we're going to have to figure it out, and there's going to be a lot of opportunity there. Uh, so you know, I don't think there's anything out there, at least before my book, that really deals with that streaming universe and how it compares to traditional television, broadcast, and cable. Uh, you know what's different about it because it has to be because of the models of those companies. What's different about it because of the moment we're in, sort of historically as an industry. Uh, so certainly, the you know problem with writing a book about our business is that it's likely to be halfway obsolete by the time it hits the the, the bookshelves. Um, and so I was in a process with my publisher editing trying to add material to the drafts while I was in the proofing phase, them telling me you cannot keep adding stuff. This is just a check for typos and formatting. Oh, but, you know, there's been an advancement in the Fox-Disney merger negotiations. I just need to put in one more line about that. <laughs> it ended up being a negotiation about how much I could add without totally knocking off all the pagination of the book. 
Yeah, because that is the nature of this industry. The the rate of change right now is incredible. And as I talked about in the introduction, just the sheer volume of content out there. Talk about how that has affected deal making in this town. Well, first of all, everything is driven by this wild sense of competition. There is a sense that you got to keep up or get left behind. And everybody knows that we are in this very exciting, frothy moment in television, but I think there is widespread anxiety about just how long is it going to last? You know, are we in a bubble? Is it going to burst? If so, when? And how much money can I make until it does? And so, uh, you know, this shows up in a couple ways. There's, a, uh, you know, certainly an arms race to get access to the best talent. Uh, you know, you need to take extraordinary steps to make your shows be noticed. I mean, it's all well and good that there's tons of shows on television, and certainly that means lots of people at work and lots of, you know, studios getting business, but it's getting harder and harder for people to find these shows. And, you know, the way that I think about it is there's not any more hours in a day than there used to be, and the rate at which original series uh, as a group are growing is far greater than the rate of population growth in this country. So uh, one of the ways that shows up in the deals is you've got to find elements that are going to make your show get noticed. You've got to find those big actors. You've got to lure those theatrical directors and theatrical writers into this medium, which is becoming more and more interesting and exciting for them. You've got to find some fantastic piece of underlying intellectual property that carries with it an audience and a brand and a sense of name recognition uh, because there's a lot of great shows out there. Um, and it's it's one thing to have a great show. It's another one to have some uh, great show that anybody's watching and cares about. And yet we're in this era where every entity out there, studio network, has, you know, foot to the pedal, pushing down hard, tons of content out there. How is this sustainable from your perspective? Um, not even just from the sense of consumer appetite – but for the companies out there to continue at this pace when there's so much uncertainty as to whether all this content's even going to get watched. Well, I don't know that if we're talking in a 10 or a 20 year time scale that it is sustainable. I think that, you know, we are going to find a ceiling. You know, John Langraff has been predicting the end of, you know, peak TV. We talk about peak TV as an era, right? As this moment of time that we're in that is characterized by so many shows and these big deals. But that's not the way the phrase was even originally used. The phrase was used to sort of identify a moment where we were going to reach maximum saturation and then we were going to start sliding down the hill on the other side. We haven't gotten to that place yet. I think a big reason for that is the infusion of cash into the television industry, uh, in particular in the entertainment industry, generally by large technology companies. And for those of us who work in Hollywood, I think it's very easy to almost get carried away thinking about the scope and the importance of what we're doing. And certainly what we're doing has outsized cultural impact domestically and internationally. Um, you know, I'm more popular at cocktail parties with my stories than my friends from law school who are selling widgets for a living or doing real estate deals. But hmm. in terms of just raw financial firepower and raw financial impact, these tech companies are way bigger than the Hollywood media companies. You know, when we talk about Netflix and Amazon and Facebook, they're dealing with war chests that just dwarf anything that was you know, traditionally available in the space. So one of the reasons why this moment has lasted as long as it has and sort of this this uh, you know, mass has expanded as widely as it has is because there's unprecedented capital available uh, coming from companies for whom this type of spending is a, is a rounding error on their balance sheet. 
as long as more and more technology companies want to view themselves as media companies, I think there's going to be space for this runway to continue if the technology companies and their big, big piles of cash start deciding maybe we don't really understand the space or maybe this this kind of business doesn't really enhance the core value of what we're doing. That's when I think we're going to go back to the original meaning of peak TV, meaning an actual apex and a slide back down the other side. So you've got these streaming companies that are propelling the peak TV phenomenon. In this week's, this latest issue of Variety, you talked about how the other uh, parts of the industry, be it broadcasters, cable, uh, independent studios, what they're going to do in this era, what they should do to cope. Uh, So let's start with the broadcasters. Yeah, so the broadcasters, I think, um, are best served by focusing on their core audience and what their core audience responds to, and also by going where their competitors are not. So the entire industry has kind of been following the model of the streamers who really have just been kind of advancing what's been going on in premium cable of big premium shows, expensive, high production values, serialized, big stars, uh, big elements, short order patterns, uh, things that are basically eight hour and 10 hour movies with the production value to, to match. And again, when it comes to access to capital, that amount of money to spend is, you know, potentially out of reach for broadcasters. But the kind of content that hasn't necessarily worked for those super well-funded companies is the kind of content that has always worked well for broadcasts, which is procedural dramas, multi-camera comedies, unscripted shows. All these shows have a few key things in common. They're relatively inexpensive to produce. They're relatively easy to produce in high volume. And they do they allow the broadcasters to compete on an area of the battlefield that their better funded competitors are just frankly not that interested in playing in although don't you think that may be just a matter of time before they do play there too that netflix has a csi of their own Potentially, but I also think that the, the the motivations are a little bit different, and it kind of goes to the essential differences in the business model. You know, one of the things that you used to hear uh, uh, senior executives of Amazon Studios say very frequently was, "We don't want to make ten people's, you know, tenth favorite show. We'd rather make three people's favorite show." Uh, and they were about sort of inspiring passion. And there's a very simple reason for that beyond, you know, the creative executive's desire to make the coolest, most exciting com- uh, content. They're subscription-driven. You've got to induce the custom- to customer to make a decision that it is worth $9.99 a month or $12.99 a month or whatever recurring payment to them to get access to this content. And the way that you probably most effectively do that is by giving them something huge, exciting, and something that they can't see anywhere else, which is another reason why the streaming companies place a really high value on exclusivity when they're making deals with provider studios. It's not necessary in the same way for an ABC or an NBC to be making everybody's favorite show. It's enough to make a show that just keeps them tuned in, that makes them stop on the channel while they're flipping channels as opposed to having to go proactively seek it out. You know, they're not selling subscriptions. They're selling eyeballs of the viewers to their advertisers, and then they're kind of selling the overall mass and value of that in the form of retransmission fees to cable and satellite providers. So when you've got a strategy that is based on justifying subscription decisions, I don't know that multi-camera comedies and procedural dramas and unscripted shows are going to make you or me or any other person make that decision to shell out $10 a month 
for your subscription. And to the extent that the streaming companies have played around in that space, it's been pretty tentative and frankly kind of unsuccessful up to date. Uh, not a lot of procedural activity going on, not for a lot, lack of trying. Uh, there was the Kathy Bates you know, pot shop comedy uh, that right. Chuck Lorre created for Netflix. It went one and done. You know, at a point where Netflix was almost never having shows go one and done. That's becoming more common now, but that was kind of a almost shocking result. And, you know, Netflix isn't afraid to pay and Netflix isn't afraid to keep shows going. But clearly that wasn't resonating with their audience because I don't think that's what you subscribe for. Cable, on the other hand, I would imagine, frankly, is more screwed. I mean – Netflix and Amazon seem to be doing the very things cable is known so well for doing. Absolutely. Cable has a much harder sort of path to chart on all of this because, as I said, the streamers are just kind of taking to the nth degree what had started in the world of basic cable. And going back to the early 2000s when shows like The Shield and Nip Tuck – a um, little bit later, Justified and eventually Mad Men, Breaking Bad, kind of started creating the idea of the of the cable drama, right, as we understand that. And that has really set the template for Netflix and Amazon. So for cable, I don't think that their best success goes in, is based on necessarily going into other genres, which have never really been their strong suit, uh, but in finding ways to do what they're doing more effectively and efficiently. And I think that means working with a lot of outside partners and kind of getting creative. And this is a place where the international marketplace really offers a lot of opportunity. There is not only more money coming into the entertainment industry than ever before from streamers, but there's more money coming in from abroad. And the types of license fees that could be expected from a major territory like the United Kingdom or Germany um, Australia, France, Italy. I mean, we're talking about factors of 2x, 3x, 5x the amount of money that these territories were kind of traditionally spinning off when they were content to just kind of get the you know, later season reruns of some broadcast network show from the U.S., uh, there's much more willingness to invest in content. You look at Norway uh, and the rest of Scandinavia that are becoming really known for uh, developing great talent and spinning off great shows, shows like uh, The Killing, which you know had a cult following off of AMC and went to Netflix. That was made by a Swedish product- uh, production company, Fabrik Entertainment. Uh, it used to be Fuse. Uh, and so – and and those territories, even what seems like a small territory like Scandinavia – you could pull a million dollars an episode license fee out of a commissioning broadcaster there, which is an extraordinary amount of money for a territory like that. Uh, would have been unheard of 10 years ago. The flip side is they expect the shows to be meaningful to them. They expect the shows to be relevant, to use local talent, to have local settings or locally culturally meaningful storylines. And so I think what I would expect to see a lot more of on cable is shows that have a real international flair in the form of well-known foreign actors, maybe not well-known in the U.S., but well-known in their countries of origin, or shows that are set in European capitals uh, or have historical sort of settings that you know, play on important elements of, of, of world history, uh, because those are going to be the shows that really generate the excitement from those local broadcasters and platforms in these countries and we'll get them to put up much more money and if you have a lot more money from the international you can accept less money in the domestic you can reduce the level of investment that's necessary for a network to put out to get a show of the same quality same production values uh so the shows may be you know somewhat cheaper than the netflix shows but not as much cheaper as they would need to be if you weren't 
sharing the cost burden with new partners outside that are more ready to participate than ever before. So we'll see if the cable networks go this international route. But what I'm also curious about is just day to day in, in your job, I would just imagine whether it's actor salary, cost of production, there's a lot more zeros than there used to be. The business affairs people are supposed to be the sensible you know, folk that are getting the creatives to mm-hmm. rein in. How do you do your job nowadays without losing your mind? It's a lot harder than it used to be. And I'll give you one more factor. We can't ask for quotes anymore. Oh, that's right. The, so, so let me Explain focus on that. that for a second. There's recent changes in the law in the state of California and the city of New York that, uh, that prohibit employers from asking for the salary history of their prospective new hires. And this comes from a very good place. This is about remedying gender disparities in pay in the workforce because when companies were confronted with the fact that they were paying women 75% of what they were paying men, the answer was usually, well, the man came in with a higher salary from his prior job, so we had to pay him more. And so the, the gap never got closed. And so these legislators made the decision, well, if you can't ask what the person made before, then you can't justify that, and you have to pay what the job is worth rather than what the person is demanding based on their prior job. That has very interesting implications for the entertainment industry because of how we historically went about making deals. We lived in the quote system. So if a creative executive said, I want to hire this writer or I want to hire this actor, Mm -hmm. before I would ever get into constructing an offer, I would get the information about the last deal they made with somebody else. And that was publicly exchanged information. You, know, you would get it from the talent and or his or her representatives, and then you would verify it with the company. And then my job was essentially to make a deal that was as close to that last deal that they made as possible. You know, They're going to ask for raises, citing new success or new notoriety or just, you know, I'm not going to do this deal for the same as the last. And it was kind of a haggling exercise around that. But you had this anchor that everybody was working from. I'm not allowed to ask for quotes anymore. And not only that, the other side, the representatives are only allowed to tell me the quotes if they are specifically authorized by their clients to share that information. They have their own kind of liability concerns. So now it's this really open field deal marketplace where instead of basing what I'm going to offer somebody uh, on what they last made, I have to look for who are comparable people that we've hired before, who are people of comparable stature, and how do we think that this new person compares? Are they a little bit higher than person X and lower than person Y? So already there's kind of this uncertainty and open field, which creates opportunity for the representatives to push for more and more and more. And then to tie that back into the sort of macro context of the industry, you know, again, competition. You don't want to be the studio that's left behind. As the business affairs person, you want to impose discipline and sensibility, and you don't want to make stupid deals. But if you don't win any deals because everyone else is making stupid deals... A, were the deals that stupid in the first place? And B, does you a fat lot of good to be disciplined if your company shuts down for lack of projects and lack of talent that's willing to work for that, uh, for you? So, uh, we're getting a lot more pressure, uh, and, and the reps, I think, feel a lot more emboldened to ask for more and more. Nowhere is this more apparent than in the, uh, actors market. Mm-hmm. I mean, 
Three years ago, it was almost a universally acknowledged reality that the maximum fee that you would pay an actor in the first season of a series was $120,000 an episode. That was the high watermark. And maybe somebody who had never worked before and was getting their first shot out of their first acting class might be getting $17,500 per episode, $20,000 per episode. And so, relatively speaking, that's not that large of a range that everybody lived in. It was like from 20 to 120, figure out somewhere in between. But the ceiling has, the ceiling is off. You know, 120 is quaint now. You know, you only need to open up an issue of Variety, frankly, and see that this actor is making $300,000 an episode and that actor is making $400,000 an episode. And everybody read the articles about Reese Witherspoon and Jennifer Aniston allegedly making a million dollars an episode with Apple. And to be clear, I don't know for a certain whether that's true. I'm reading it in the trade, same as everyone else. But that obviously sets, A, a new high watermark and a huge band of negotiation. You're no longer haggling within a $100,000 range. You're haggling within a million-dollar range. And people can ask for virtually anything, and you got to figure it out. And again, you want to impose discipline, but if the other guy is willing to go there and you're not, you'll start losing the deals and you can't keep your business running. And yet here we are, you know, how Netflix, Amazon, Hulu have propelled this marketplace and yet there's still more coming. Apple, as you just alluded to, could eventually grow to Netflix-sized proportions in terms of their entertainment investment. YouTube and Facebook could start to step things up. So where is it going to take this marketplace? It's going to be out of control. Yeah, well, again, I think that uh, I think that the marketplace is going to continue to grow and continue to be frothy. And it's going to take a couple years for these tech companies to decide whether they're getting a return on their investment. And what's going to be really interesting is just to see how they come to the conclusion of whether these dollars spent, these high fees that they themselves have been drawing were worthwhile to them because they've all got wildly different business models with which to measure the return on investment. You look at Netflix and in a sense, that's the simplest version of it. They're just selling subscriptions. They collect a certain number of dollars per month from a certain number of human beings. That's the revenue. Yeah, there's some ancillary stuff, but essentially they're selling one product, the subscription to their service, and they've got one revenue model for it. And so It may be hard to measure the return on an investment on any one deal or any one show, but you look at the slate and you can kind of compare the numbers in one column to the other. Compare that to Amazon, where video is just a huge part of their overall market strategy. I think it's really significant that Amazon Prime Instant Video, the video subscription service, is not generally made available or pushed as a separate subscription. If I pay $12.99 a month for Amazon Prime because I want to watch Man in the High Castle or Transparent, that same $12.99 a month or you know, $109 a year, whatever it is, is also getting me my two-day free shipping. And it's also getting me my Kindle lending library and my Amazon Music sub- subscription. It's a real technical challenge for the people of those companies to try to make sense of, this subscription decision, how much was it driven by the show versus all these other aspects of our value offering? And then also remember, Amazon's goal is not necessarily to run the world's most successful video service. Amazon's goal, I think you can hear it from Bezos himself, is to run the world's largest, most successful company. You know, There's a reason why the book about Amazon was called The Everything Store, because they want to sell everything to everyone. So it's all part of this world domination plan. Somewhere in between you have Apple, which is not quite as expansive in its ambitions and not quite as diverse in its business model and has a more sort of direct relationship between technology and content. You know, there's, you know, the, the purpose of, of the iTunes store for as a music marketplace was to push 
iPod sales. And it wasn't that they were making so much money selling 99 cent MP3s. They were just selling a lot more iPads because of it. So there's a more direct connection between their products and their core business and, uh, and the video concept. But it's still more attenuated than for a Netflix where that's just their one business. And then Facebook is, you know, a thing unto itself where in some senses it's almost more like a traditional broadcaster where fundamentally they're selling eyeballs. They're selling access to advertisers. And so all of their different areas of business are about increasing engagement with the customer, you know, getting more customer time on the website, more customer eyeballs on the website, and then selling access to those eyeballs. So again, it's just a different setting for what the broadcasters were doing all along. Get the people to watch so you can sell their eyeballs to the advertisers. So all of these companies are going to measure return on investment in wildly different ways. And I think some of them are going to conclude that this is worth their while and some of them are going to conclude that it's not. And a big part of that is going to be how many people are actually watching these shows. And when you say some of these companies could say it's not worth the time or investment, what is going to happen when a major player – that is, you know, investing billions pulls out of the marketplace. I assume the market doesn't just, you know, move uh, smoothly forward. I mean, that's a fantastic question, to be honest. And, uh, and the honest answer on my part is I'm not really sure. I think it's going to send a critical signal to the marketplace of, you, you know, the first major player that pulls out is is kind of the sign on the road that says, you know, road ending ahead. Mm-hmm. That maybe, you know... This thing is really going to tip and we're going to start turning in the other direction. There's been little movements in that direction. You know, Bravo has been public about rethinking its strategy for scripted and maybe pulling back on its investment in scripted. Uh, A&E had the well-regarded Bates Motel kind of pulled out of that scripted business as well. But at the end of the day, their investments were never so robust that that really moved the needle in the aggregate marketplace. If, you know, Amazon or Apple, which have been pumping billions of dollars into the ecosystem for the last couple of years, suddenly stops, well, for one, that dramatically changes the comp- competitive landscape. You don't n- no longer have to have companies that are sort of falling over one another to see who can be the most generous to get people to work with them. Um, you know, I think one thing that I'm going to be interested to see also is when does the talent start changing their thinking about things right now? Because, you know, there are lots of different things that motivate talent. Money is a great way to do it. It's usually the easiest way to do it. And it's certainly something that, you know, if you've got more available, you can just put more on the table. But that's not the only thing that motivates talent. Uh, talent cares about their product, their, their baby being seen. They're, you know, putting this great creative effort in. They want that to be experienced and appreciated by other people. If they start feeling that, boy, it's great to cash these checks, but if the output doesn't have any cultural impact and doesn't reach anybody, what's really the point? Maybe I want to focus my efforts back into other areas where I think my stuff is going to be appreciated. I think that's a factor that is maybe informed uh, at least in the early days, some of the differences in experience between Amazon and Netflix in the theatrical market. Um, Netflix has been very unwilling to work with exhibitors and to compromise on their day and date strategy. And so they get access to very few screens and Netflix movies and to have very small theatrical releases or no theatrical release whatsoever. And Amazon, you know, I think they're still working on on growing their audiences, but has been much more willing to strike a balance between serving their video service and their ecosystem and also getting the the film into theaters. Um, And one of the ways that 
you know, is showing in results is in Oscar nominations. Not that either of them has been sort of running away with it, but Amazon has certainly been much more successful than Netflix when it comes to gathering Oscar nominations because of that theatrical strategy. And I think because of that theatrical strategy, meaning the Academy voters are still prioritizing the theatrical experience and they want to reward things that they're seeing in theaters. But also I think that there have been, you know, more auteur-like writers and directors and theatrical talent that has been willing to work with Amazon because they're willing to prioritize access to that theatrical release. So with all this activity on the streaming side, let's not forget that back in so-called traditional media, we're seeing Disney is going to really – consolidate what they do in terms of getting a big streaming product that could potentially rival Netflix. We're seeing AT&T saying HBO is going to become a bigger entity. Mm-hmm. We'll see by how much. Will the deal making with even traditional media companies change as their path to market goes direct to consumer? Well, I think that de- yes, but maybe not as much for the talent necessarily as for some of the intermediary companies. I mean, the big, you know, people talk about consolidation, but the thing that consolidation is sort of means for practical purposes in our TV industry is vertical integration. I mean, if you're an independent studio, try to sell a show to FX right now. Hmm. You can't do it. You know, try to sell a show to AMC. Maybe they'll put an offer on the table. It's probably not going to be one that you're willing to accept. And so as these companies are getting bigger and bigger and bigger, they are, I think, of diminishing willingness to work with other people. Um, you know, I think that the Disney SVOD service and the Disney Fox combination are inextricably related to each other. Buying Fox dramatically increases the volume of projects that Disney has available to funnel into its service. And so the deals for the talent might not change, but the intermediaries are going to be increasingly pressured in the market as all of these companies kind of transform into walled garden closed ecosystems where they just develop for themselves, produce for themselves and exhibit to their own subscribers. And they try to reduce their interconnections with other parts of the industry. And that's happening not only in kind of the studio network relationship and linkage, uh, and linkage, but it's also been part of the network MVPD, meaning satellite or cable provider linkage. I mean, going back only 10 years, if you wanted to watch any network, unless it was a broadcast network, you got access to that network through some intermediary, a provider, a cable company, a satellite company. And even when streaming became available and people wanted access on smart devices, that was still usually tied to a subscription. You could watch FX Now, the app, if you could log in to show that you were subscribed to a cable or satellite company that included a subscription to FX. That really started changing, I think, first with Netflix really establishing a direct-to-consumer subscription business that was in no way intermediated by a traditional cable or satellite company. Netflix was also very smart and very proactive about saying, boy, instead of working with cable and satellite companies, let's work with device manufacturers. Let's get a Netflix app built into the television. Let's get a Netflix remote, excuse me, a Netflix button on the remote from the TV coming out of the box. What an amazing tool that is and they focused on that because that's a less intermediated relationship with the customer and more traditional companies have followed suit so hbo which you know even as the cable and satellite companies were losing subscribers to cord cutters 
you know, streamers. Uh, HBO was the thing that was saving them, you know, that and live sports, basically. And then HBO offered HBO Now. And all of a sudden, you can pay $15 a month to HBO, and you don't have to pay for the rest of your uh, cable or satellite subscription. Um, So Netflix has, excuse me, HBO reduced the distance between them and the customer, cut out that middleman. Um, So again, examples of kind of closed ecosystem, walled gardens, it's, it's those those connective tissue players in the industry that are going to suffer, I think, much more than the talent are in that world. So, you know, as I mentioned earlier, you've worked at a number of different places. You're at Paramount Now, Sony, Amazon. So you've gotten different fields for different kinds of companies. As we go through this period of what I think is kind of unprecedented change for this industry, do you have a vision of how things are going to play out you know, two, five years, uh, 10 years from now, and, and perhaps, you know, is this going to be a good thing for the industry at the end of the day? Or are we getting to a place, as you were kind of alluding to, where the consolidation is going to bring us to very few players? Yeah, I, I mean, look, I think that um, there's inevitably going to be winners and losers. So it's not even necessary, necessarily meaningful to talk about, is this going to be good for the industry so much as it's going to be good for certain constituencies within the industry. Um, You know, my sort of predictions, big picture for the next, you know, five years, 10 years is I'm going to start with a vacating of the middle in terms of scale. Uh, I think everybody's going to be really, really big or really, really small and nimble. They're going to be able to do huge things or they're going to be able to do cheap things. And in a way, that kind of echoes something that's been playing out in the film world in a big way over the last 15 years. You know, anybody in the film world will tell you how hard it is to get a movie made that costs between 20 million and 80 million dollars right now. It's got to be done for a budget or it's got to be huge four quadrant entertainment with, you know, franchise potential. And that middle ground has kind of evaporated. I think that's a potentially apt metaphor for what the corporate landscape is going to be. If you're middle size, your your overhead's too high, your your market entry challenges are, t- are, are, are too high, and you got to push to get big or, or get small. Um, another thing that I would sort of put out there is I do think that the, you know, the pace of growth of what we are seeing uh, in the industry is unsustainable, and I do think there will be a tipping point. Obviously, it's coming later than you know, John Langraff predicted, predicted when he gave his original peak TV address. Uh, you referenced a little while ago you know, some of the data on this, and you start seeing this already in parts of the market. So while people are looking at the overall counts of scripted comedies and dramas on television, and they're saying, boy, every year is bigger than the year before it, and we've gone from you know, 216 or 218 shows 10 years ago to it's probably going to be over 500 when, when this year is done, which is wow. a staggering growth. But if you start limiting that to the last two years or so. Well, now we're talking about having moved from around 425 shows to over 500 shows, which is still massive growth. But where is that growth coming from? It's coming from the streamers. And you look at basic cable and their production counts are actually down from two years ago. Broadcast basically flat, which is also unsurprising because broadcast has finite inventory in terms of broadcast hours to uh, uh, to deal with and a sort of traditional kind of primetime programming schedule. Uh, Premium cable also basically flat over the last two years. Now, I do think that that could also change because you referenced, and I'm hearing the same thing, uh, about pressure from AT&T on HBO to go the Netflix strategy, to go volume business. Um, But I think you are likely to see a small number of players that capture a very large amount of the volume. 
Um, and in some ways, you know, players that are built to be able to do that, a broadcast network or even a cable network can only have so many shows on the air because they've got 24 hours a day to fill and some of that time's got to go to ads and some of that time there's not enough people watching to justify spending money on anything other than an infomercial. But, you know, the, you know, Netflix is to a traditional network the way that Amazon is to a traditional bookstore. The shelf space is endless. It goes on to infinity. Uh, so they can just keep stacking and stacking and stacking. So um, I think volume is going to be highly concentrated as well. Well, Ken, at the rate of change that we're seeing in this industry that we've talked a lot about here today, you may need to put out new editions of your book every six months or well, so. Well, you know, I said it may be a fool's errand to write a book like this becomes, because it comes outdated so quickly, but it also may be a genius business plan because I may have to uh, generate 10 more of these before the decade is out. <laughs> well, well, we'll get you to work. Thanks for coming in and talking to me. Thank you so much. My pleasure. And thanks for listening to another episode of Strictly Business. Tune in next week when my podcast partner, Cynthia Littleton, managing editor of television at Variety, sits down with the director and entrepreneur, Timur Bekmambetov. And if you are liking what you're hearing from this podcast each week, make sure you leave some praise in the App Store or email us at podcasts at variety.com. See you next time. 